doubt you'll send the chaos in the streets. We must make an example, or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. This costume you have on. This is my uniform. I led the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life has changed, Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? This vermin has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. forces against me. What's the outcome of this if you don't succeed? Your Majesty, we are discovered. Good. It's a trap! I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. Welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 34.2, Ridley and Napoleon. Well, we wasted no time today, folks. I went to go see Napoleon with my son the day after Thanksgiving. And here it is. He and I just came back, turned the mics on, started chatting away about it just right quick. Wanted to get our immediate thoughts down. No time for contemplation. This is it, folks. You get a lot of uh, cinema history, a lot of real history, a lot of two guys just talking about how cool it was to sit through Sir Ridley Scott's latest creation. felt like an hour to me trying to make this damn equipment work and i'm gonna have to have words with with GarageBand or apple but thanks to you we're, we're up and running on audacity which pretty much every other podcast user uses so i finally joined the club thanks for getting us up and running now uh napoleon yeah well, what are your thoughts we just got out of the theater like i don't know an hour and a half ago and I mean, I, I definitely have thoughts. I know that you have thoughts. I just finished this 
810-page biography of Napoleon by Andrew Roberts, and this was my first foray into early 18th century history. I've read stuff on the American Revolution, and I kind of have a working knowledge of, Repo of Napoleon before I got to that in the Napoleonic Empire. And of course, I have seen a tremendous amount of films about about Napoleon and the French Revolution. And I, I read a great book on the French Revolution called Citizens by Simon Shama, which I, I greatly recommend. And kind of what I liked about uh, this book and this film is that Citizens is a great book before you read Napoleon, and and a great way to go into Napoleon all that background before you you just because the first scene is Marie Antoinette losing her head. So let's start off with your impressions of the film, and then we'll get into questions yes. and like scenes we liked and so forth. So impressions. I didn't read the book. I didn't read anything about Napoleon before this. Of course, I know him, you know, in the whole history, general history of uh, him and his achievements and accomplishments and what he did. And I, I knew generally what it's about, but I had no detailed knowledge of of him, really. So... I was really looking forward. This was one of my most anticipated films of the year. Uh, it was up there with Oppenheimer for me to go see because I, I just love uh, historical epics. My general consensus of the movie is I, I really enjoyed it, but it does have some some major flaws that could have been voided with either like a longer cut of the film or explanations on certain aspects of the film. But I did, I did really enjoy it, and I'm grateful for movies like this that are still coming out. Okay, so let's... Let's start off by saying that we are expecting a four-hour yes. director's cut of this film to be released, we think, straight to Apple. Apple TV, probably. Probably after 90 days. Yeah, maybe. And I am I will be watching that because I'm, I'm almost certain it's going to be like a Kingdom of Heaven situation again where the director's cut is significantly better than the, than the theatrical version, so... But once again, the four-hour cut of the film is not what we saw, so you gotta, you got to talk about what you saw in the film now. It's not rating what might come. So there are problems in this film that may be addressed later, but as as of right now, there, there are problems. The nice thing that I did find about the film is is knowing that there is an extended cut to come. Yes. One of the one of the problems that you have when you're cutting films, and particularly if you have films that are over long, and you take Dune as a fine example. Now you saw the long version of Dune. Yes, <laughs> the three-hour version. You never saw the the two-hour, ten-minute version that, that David Lynch approved. And in in my estimation, my guess, my opinion of that is that the editor and Lynch is responsible for this. Where they were trying to trim too much off of every scene to make it shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, and that that hurt the lengths of the scene. And then later on in his career, you see Lynch as actually there's on Instagram. I saw a video of him. Somebody was like, are you worried about the scene getting long? And this was while they were shooting. And Lynch was like, I don't care about the scene going too long. And he just erupts in anger. And I think that comes from Dune because there were scenes that were destroyed during during Dune. Now, Napoleon does, does not seem to suffer from that. I don't. It does not look like they've made scenes shorter. It just looks like they've deleted entire scenes. And the grand poobah of how to do this is when everyone told James Cameron, look, the abyss is way too long. It can't be three hours. you got to cut it down to like two hours, 15 minutes. And he deleted an entire subplot line, which led to the aliens being really, really exposed at the end. And I prefer the longer version of the abyss. But when I saw that in the theater, I was really clueless, as, like a lot of people, as to what was going on. That is not necessarily how you want to, to edit things down, but it, it worked well for what the abyss was, but it's just not what 
what uh, Cameron wanted. Uh, in Napoleon, I, I felt that almost every scene had a longer purpose and a longer point. And I felt that a lot of the scenes, especially to do with history and the events, especially with the, the directory, I felt they were shown once. And I felt that there was a lot of explaining you could have done for uh, more general audiences because, like, you know, you read the book and you know what all this stuff is. And generally, I know briefly the history. And I knew what was going on, but I know there would be people who would be a little confused on where, where stuff is taking place. And another thing is, well, I'll get into that later because that's one of my points. But I felt that there was cutting, a lot, a lot of cutting. But it is a fast-paced film, I felt, because of that. Well, what? give me another example of another scene that you think was cut too short. Everything to do with the Emperor. There's one scene of, you should be king. And the <laughs> next scene is the coronation. Like, No, the next scene is, is the vote. And then the coronation. Mm -hmm. And that's like over like two years, right? Yeah, that's it's a very so, long time, yeah. So, and, and there's multiple cutting. Remember the, the, the Battle of Tul, Tul, Tuli? Toulon? T Toulon. Yeah. The beginning, the before scene is like 1794 or something. Mm -hmm. And then, or 93, just after Marie loses her head. Right. And then it talks like, you got to go take this thing. You got to go take the ships in the, in the city and in in that thing. And then it's like a cut two years later. So I don't know whether that scene took place like right before or it took place in 1793. Are they planning this battle for two years? You know what I mean? So it's kind of like a little disjointed of to where things are taking place and when but uh I, I know that'll be problems with some people that's that's true and then it like jumps three years and all of a sudden he's in the middle he, of he's, egypt. In, he's in the middle of egypt right. like, like how the hell did there's, he get there's here? no explanation of why he needs to take egypt um why he's there why he's called back um well no that's explained from josephine and then right. well that winds up not being even not not true. even true yeah and then you know the whole thing there's the whole problem with him leaving um, Egypt is not explained. There's just one battle scene and a mummy shot, and that's basically all of Egypt. So th there could have been more explanations there. So for, for our listeners who have seen the film, Ridley Scott is is beset, unfortunately, by the true events of, of French <laughs> history, which get very complicated very quickly in the first 10 years of the revolution, I would say. So I'm not going to go into why the French Revolution happened. You can re read a book from that, but, you know, the, the king was overthrown. He was kept in sort of like a, a mode of house arrest. The Estates General, which was the legislature of France, they disbanded. They created a national assembly that they thought was more fair. That national assembly put Louis on trial. They became more radical as, as the, the years ticked by. And in 1793, Louis Fourteenth lost the trial and, and he was guillotined. And his wife uh, followed him about six months later. His wife is Marie Antoinette, famously detested person in history. After that, France goes into what they call a reign of terror. The National Assembly cannot rule, so they, they – because there's like 500 people in the National Assembly. So they select a, a few of them. I think there's a, a committee of three, and they call themselves the Committee of Public Safety. They turn out to be an absolute fucking disaster. And the, the leader of the Committee of Public Safety is, is, is Maximilien Robespierre, who's the leader of these radical far left wing, you know, Jacobins is what they're called, the Jacobin Party. The directory falls in this, this famous coup, coup d'etat, which is called the Thermidorian reaction to, because it takes place on the Republican calendar in the new month of Thermidor, which is heat. 
and and that's a terminology used now to to get rid of the killers before they kill you type of situation. And then when the the, the committee of public safety, the CPS, is replaced by the directory, a five man panel, and they they go on for three four years. And when Napoleon returns back from Egypt, he's actually returning to Egypt because the directory has called him back because they are at war with Austria. Austria occupies all of northern Italy, and Napoleon is is needed to to go back and conquer the areas of France that Austria has conquered, and then to push the Austrians back, and that's what he does. After he's that is a two year struggle, which Napoleon basically learns how to maneuver armies in the field of enormous sizes. And after that, they, the directory says, what do we do next? And because they're still at war with England and everyone has this idea, Napoleon is with it, of let's go to Egypt and let's, let's use Egypt as the throughput to which to press the English in their empire. And Napoleon does that. He conquers Egypt in record time. He's in the middle of a, a siege of Acre, which is really funny to you and I because we just finished reading like 600 pages of medieval history. <laughs> yes. And Acre is seemingly con- constantly under siege. That's the, the Ottoman Empire at the, at the time. And in the middle of that siege, and he's about to lose it actually, they say, you need to come back here and, and because Austria is, is, is acting up again. So he does that again. And he's got to reconquer all this territory that he just conquered before. And he finds it extraneous that he's having to reconquer all this territory that he conquered before. If the directory would just would just do their job, then this wouldn't be necessary. So he sees them as corrupt and inefficient and ineffectual and incompetent. And so he just says, you know, I think – and he, he thinks I can do a better job myself. And he has the tools of which to do it because his troops are very loyal to him. So he makes a, a tripartite act, you could say, with the Abbe Sayyiz on one side and Talleyrand on the other side. To, to form this new consulate. First consulate, second consulate, third consulate, consul, actually. Their jobs are consuls, and he's the first consul. So it's not necessarily the, the dictatorship of the first consul. There are three consuls, but no one ever remembers the second and third one. So they, he is, his title is first consul or first citizen, and that goes on for a number of years. And how Ridley Scott is, is able to convey that on film in the span of an hour that that took place, it just has to be very challenging. And I don't, I think you're right. It didn't come across very well. There's, there's three different government systems that are in this film. It's, uh, you know, the, the reign of terror and that stuff. And then it's like the directory and then it's the, the consulates and then the, the empire. And then that's like four systems that go by very quickly like most most people are only aware of emperor of the like him being emperor and the you know the, the French revolutions which doesn't include the reign of terror you know so that was very that could have been handled a little a little better but you know once again I I don't see it as a that big of an issue because it's not like hard to follow it's very it's a it's a kind of a middle ground i found it easy to follow but i don't know about other people you know, you know what i mean right i think if you walked into it blind you might be if not knowing anything, you'd be. Right. I think you'd be very confused on why scenes are happening. Yeah, and at the same time, it's it's punctuated by these these jumps in time that are just very confusing. Yeah, six years in the future after yeah. Egypt, and it's eighteen oh four. And then it has these very real moments, like the the Brumaire coup in seventeen ninety nine, when he when he takes over the directory, has all the members of the directory uh, arrested. He goes in to basically force the National Assembly to vote in in the consulate. 
and his brother is actually in the in the chamber trying to to convey all this Joseph Bonaparte, who is just this person in Napoleon's circle, who has a roller coaster of a career in terms of this guy is negotiating treaties and he's turning around and then he's put in charge of Spain, which he just pisses away mm. uh, grandiosely, right? And in the middle of that struggle in the chamber, you know, Napoleon is almost beat to death. Like they, they grab him and roughly handle him. And if the guards were not there, uh, you know, he, he could have conceivably been severely hurt. And that's not a, a moment of, of pride, I'm sure, that he looked back on in his career. And and I thought the film did very well of, you know, he got out of there with, you know, luckily with the coat still on his back type of situation where he's out of breath and he's running around. and He's really, really, I mean, thank God there were guards there. Like he was in, it could have ended right there and then. It wouldn't be the first time a, a member of the, any type of legislative assembly was beaten to death, you know. Especially I mean, in France. Especially in France, yeah. In the United States, famously, there was you know there was a senator that was beat on the floor with a cane during the yeah oh, yeah uh, Jackson. Uh, no, it was Wait, no, no the, the guy who got uh, the president was almost assassinated. Charles Sumner. Uh, no, it was Charles Senator Charles Sumner who, who gave a speech on uh, on abolition, and a Southern senator uh, beat the shit out of him on the floor of the Senate with a cane, and broke the cane. Oh, and so the slaver, of course, was so popular in the South that his constituents sent him new canes. No, oh, okay. said you need to. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I wouldn't say that our history well, is any any better than Republican France. Well, I, we. I mean, we didn't cut off anyone's head. You know, I mean, we did not guillotine people. That's that's for sure. Actually, you know, our very strange aside, our punishment process <laughs> in our penal process is based on the observations of Alexis de Tocqueville, who is a a French citizen who came over to study America. Hmm. And it's called Democracy in America is the name of his book. It's, it's very, very interesting, very popular in France, I should say. Anyway, so Scott had a very challenging uh, Time first hour. This. Yes. Um, is there anything else you want to – general thoughts you want to bring up before these, uh, these points are? It really became apparent to me. I thought this going in, but in the first hour, it really, I think, held true, where this was the wrong format for what Scott was trying to do. And they really needed a six-part TV series to, Hmm. and in my opinion, directed by Ridley Scott. It wouldn't be the first time he produced a TV series, Pillars of the Earth, about 20 years ago, which was with Haley Atwell and and Eddie Redmayne, which was was a really, it was a very good attempt to convey the points of, of a book, The Pillars of the Earth, which was one of the most popular fiction books in the last 20 years. Regardless, I really wanted, thought this should have been a six-part ser- miniseries on HBO Max. Yeah, I'm, I'm unsure on that because it kind of loses the sense of scale if you put it in a TV format. You know, there's very few uh, TV shows that have, that can, you know, give off the, the presence that Napoleon would, would have. Who knows? Who knows? It could have been, it could have been amazing, you know. It could have been great, but... Uh, no, but you're right. Like, I don't see Joaquin Phoenix starring see, in yeah, an HBO see, Max. Yeah, and, that's... That's the thing. I don't see him starring in the thing, and I don't see it getting a lot of, you know, attention. But the movie did, and I'm glad the movie did. But anyway, anyway, it okay. could have been great. Let's now, go through your points. These aren't in order, but I'm just going to, like, go with uh, what's generally chronological in terms of the movie. I'm going to try and start with the 
the stuff in the beginning and then save the stuff for the end, right? I I was thinking when we were getting out of the out of the film because it starts in like 1789. Yeah. So I was thinking at the credit sequence. Is yeah. It, yeah. Is there a point for earlier life scene of things on Corsica? Because I I know you mentioned that there was conflicts with him in the with Napoleon and and the government because he was from Corsica. Right. I don't know if that's something important to bring up because they didn't view him as a, an aristocrat or like a proper noble because he was like lower on the hierarchy. So well, I don't know if that's important to bring up for the film, you know? Well, I think, I think that that's an essential part, part of, his of, life. of who Napoleon is. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't disappointed to not see it in the film, but I think that would have, that would have helped everyone see where he came from, where he came from because the, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when he's at that dinner table, like he's eating with his fingers, right? And this is in this in this time in France, everyone is using, using forks. Using forks. Who is a Talleyrand comes in and says, "They look at you like you're some Corsican thug." Yeah, and that's exactly how they thought how they thought of him. And uh, Napoleon's father, uh, Carlo, uh, was a a member of the a very low born member of the nobility of Corsica. Corsica was a, a province of Italy, Genoa specifically. It was settled by the Genoese and they were constantly at war with France for the preceding century. And France finally conquered them the year after Napoleon was born. So Napoleon is only French uh, on a technicality. On a technicality. That's right. And his first language was a Corsican dialect his second language was French, which he spoke fluently with no accent. And his third language was, uh, I'm sorry, I meant to say Italian. He spoke Italian with no accent. And his third language was French, which he spoke with a Corsican accent that he could not get rid of. And th- this, of course, is why a lot of people in France treated him differently, just dismissed him outright. They didn't think that he was much of a person to, to take note of. And it's also one of these reasons why the other Europeans, because of his low noble birth, uh, they don't uh, like Ale- Alexander I of Russia or Francis I of Austria or George III of England when he was, you know, in his modes of, of complete sobriety because he was, he was the mad King George. You know, that's why they, they, they had no respect for this guy. And there are correlations, like we spoke of the other day, of – you know, Hitler being born in Austria and having an Austrian accent when he spoke German. Of course, the Germans in Austria and Germany is the same language, but there is a dialect, a very specific dialect, that the other uh, higher-born Germans, particularly the ones with the Vons in their name, who were these Prussian Junker aristocrats, you know, they looked down on, on Hitler as this corporal who was giving these field marshals uh, directions. And then, of course, you can draw a parallel to Stalin, who was Georgian, Mm -hmm. uh, Russian-Georgian, and he had a Georgian accent as he spoke uh, in Russian. And all the the Russians uh, for the the first 10 years after the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, a lot of them looked down on Stalin as this Georgian gangster who had killed people in these bank robberies and wasn't worthy to sit at the same table as Lenin. And I think a lot of the people in France in the 1790s and, and the 1800s, they thought the same way of Napoleon. Like, I can't believe I have to share a room with this asshole, uh, this Corsican thug, or, or the, the fact that my name's got to be on the same piece of paper as someone like him. They just, they just didn't think of him very much. And in that way, like, I, I disagree with that, like that, that little 
person theory that a lot of people have of Napoleon. I don't, I don't like the, you know, he's, he's a little man, so he's got something to prove. I disagree with that, but he did have a big chip on his shoulder and he was itching to prove it. And I think a lot of that led to some overcomfortability with his own abilities and processes. And he violated those because of that self-assuredness because of what he had accomplished. And that led to his downfall. That chip on his shoulder led to his downfall. They can't beat me because I've beaten them before. Mm-hmm. Good point. Go ahead. Um, next point is, um, you know, failures. His failures and successes are not explained well. Neither of them are. So my main, my main point is, is Waterloo. You know, the final, the final act of the, of the film. Um, none of it is explained very well. Why he loses what causes his loss and that, and that goes the same for his, his, uh, his successes. Only one scene explains why, like it shows off his, his prowess in the, on the battlefield and the, his tactician skills. And that's the scene in the, in the winter when he defeats the, uh, the, uh, the Austrians, is it? Yeah. The battle of Austerlitz, the Austrians and the Prussians and the Russians. Every other battle really isn't explained. Well, it doesn't show him as a great tactitianer except for that one. And then I know Waterloo. You said that there was uh, it was war gamed um, after it was explained. This, oh yeah, well, the the Battle of Waterloo, as it was portrayed, was extremely frustrating for me because it just seemed like both both Napoleon and Wellington, Wellington uh, basically sat in their tent. Napoleon sat in his tent, and Wellington sat on his and horse and go forward. Right, that was it, and, and that is a complete misportrayal of oh, what really yeah. happened in the battle. And if you want to, if you want to watch like the best beat by beat blow by blow movie about Waterloo is a, a movie called Waterloo <laughs> that was directed by, I want to say it was Abel Vance. Dylan is referring to Abel Gantz, the director of a four hour silent film about Napoleon that premiered in 1927. Waterloo was directed by Sergei Bondarchuk, a Soviet director, and it premiered in 1970. It was 1970, and it's an amazing film. It's three hours. They shot it in Ukraine. On It was the only place they could find where they just had vast amounts of space where they could just shoot whatever they wanted to do. There were elements of the Soviet military that they, were, they used in unit, uniform for the film, a lot like Kohlberg from 1945 that the Nazis yeah. shot. You know, these Nazi soldiers in the film. Christopher Plummer plays Wellington in this brilliant portrayal, which I actually think suited the the man, Wellington. And then uh, Rod Steiger, who's everyone kind of forgets now. He's famously was the sheriff in the the heat of the night. So it's three years after he does that movie. He plays Napoleon in, in Waterloo. And it really does this amazing representation of what really happened. I have no idea what led to that production of why they felt the need to tell that film in 1970. It's kind of like when Richard Harris played Cromwell in 1973. It was like, who asked for this in 1973? But it is an amazing story.
Goodbye, my sons. Goodbye, my children. Really are the best of my generals. My body's dying, yet my brain is still good. the great thief of Europe himself. Wellington nothing to offer me but these Amazons. By God, that land does war on us. What remains of us here? Here! Tell them that we won the war! We won the war! Will you agree to surrender? Mad! is really conveyed in in the 30 minutes of of Waterloo. So for for our listeners and you can you can read an, an awesome book by John Keegan called The The Face of Battle. I think it's 1975 is when Keegan was still young. John Keegan is just one of the greatest historians of the 20th century. And he looked at three battles and I think I talked to you about this before. He yes. looked at Aaron Corps and 12 15, no, it's Magna Carta is 1215. Aaron Corps in 1415, he looked at the Somme in 1915, and then he looked at Waterloo in 1815. And all three of those towns are within like three miles of each other in a triangle. It's crazy. And just over the centuries, for whatever reason, this little area in Belgium decided the fate of France in all three of those circumstances. And Wellington had fought Napoleon's generals, although not himself, in, in Portugal for, for I, I want to say, five or six years. 
And so he was very familiar with those Napoleonic tactics. And Wellington was actually in Austria after the Battle of Leipzig, in which everything just just went to shit on, on the, the way back from, from Russia. And Napoleon failed to force a decision for the Allies to let him maintain the boundaries of, of France. And he had to go back to France and prepare for the defense of the country. And so Wellington's attitude towards Napoleon on any given day of his life was Napoleon was a better general. If you had asked Wellington at 6 a.m., noon, or midnight, who was the better general, Wellington would always tell you Napoleon was the better general. So the idea of, of Wellington on his high horse, so to speak. Yeah, he was smug and looked down on Napoleon the whole time. I have this in the bag. I don't care. You know, I'm, I can just stand here and wait for my troops to do whatever. And it... And as you told me, it's not really how it happened. Right. Wellington worked his fighting for his ass life. off. We, exactly. He worked his ass off. He was in the saddle. Some people said 22 hours or 25 hours of that day, he was in the saddle. During the battle, he was constantly going from the left wing to the right wing to farmhouses. to, And he was going down to the company level and talking to the lieutenants and instructing them of this is what you have to do in this specific circumstance. And all of this was was just micromanaging to just find any possible way to defeat Napoleon. He had to. He and, had to. And then you said Napoleon it was just an, it was a horrible time for him. He he apparently, by all accounts, was not healthy that day, and he lost a lot. This is after the hundred days, mind you. This is after he comes back from Elba, and the day he sets foot on France to the day that he's at Waterloo is only a hundred days. So in, in three and a half months, he gets, he gets to, to Belgium, and a lot of historians just think he's just tired. He's just exhausted, and he's out of practice because he spent 10 months on Elba doing nothing. You know, and uh, famously in the scene, one of the things that they got right was, you know, the battle didn't start until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, shit, you were told at 3 a.m. that Blücher is on his way, mm. and he's, he's doing a, a forced night march. Like, start the battle. Like, if Napoleon had started the – there's a lot of ifs. But if the Napoleon had started the battle at 3 a.m., he would have won. And if he had started the battle anytime at 6 o'clock or 9 o'clock or even noon, it, a lot of people say, well, he would have won. This idea that he didn't want to go out during the rain is kind of kind of stupid. And, and the idea of Wellington saying something like, I try not to get wet, like, come on. Wellington went through an unbelievable amount of shit. When he was in Portugal, fighting the French in in Spain, it was that was a crazy remark just just to read. So and it it really takes away from from Wellington's effort that he did everything that he could. And the famous line from Wellington with people after the battles uh, when he got back to England, they were like, "So so how did it go? How did you win?" And he said, "It was the nearest run thing. It was the closest damn thing in history. Like he came so close to losing that battle." And no matter how many times he said that, no matter how many times he repeats that, no matter how many times people read that. It's, it's always presented as like the most extravagant defeat of all time. Right. And in the, even in the film, it's, it's almost presented, even before the battle starts, it's presented as like a loss, like already. You know, it's like the impending doom that is, he points on the map, and he's like, Waterloo. And then whether you know or not, it's presented as like the, the, the tragedy, you know, and it doesn't seem as a, it's um, presented well, like historically. He's like, even throughout, he's, he's ordering the troops and it doesn't seem like he cares. Right, right. And, and it's, it's presented, I thought, I thought the battle was presented a little underwhelming. 
And, you know, it, it actually made me think back to Braveheart when Edward the uh, Longshanks, Edward the First, technically, you know, he's on the battlefield and, and he's he's kind of just blithely giving these, these orders of, hey, you know, use the the Irish to go against the Scots because what's the famous line? Like, uh, arrows cost money, but the dead cost nothing. And then, then they use the arrows when the Irish betray them. And then uh, he sends in the infantry. And then he cleans up the cavalry. And like in, in 15 minutes, the battle's over. And the king's like, okay, let's go home. And I kind of got the feeling that that's, that's where they wanted to go with Wellington on his horse going, oh, do this and do that. And I'm just not going to move easy. off my horse. In the bag. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Scarface, right? million here, million there. No problem. So that, that, was, that was my problem with the, that battle. But like once again, they're all directed well. You very know, well, very it's, well. They're directed and presented very well, but it's not presented, except for Waterloo. But every other battle is presented, like, very, very grandiose, and it's a battle scene of battle scenes. Like, it's one of the best depictions of a battle I've seen on film. The Waterloo engagement? No, like, just or generally, just, just general. generally, like, the uh, the one with the Austrians and then the water and Waterloo and all of that I thought was very amazing to look at. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I hate to cut in here. I'm just going to put in this sort of little aside here because I got very frustrated when I was editing this thing and I figured out that Luke asked a setup question, which I never followed through because I get wrapped up into the moment and I get on a tangent on a tangent on a tangent, whether it's cinema or history or both. And I realized I never answered his question. I never really brought up what he wanted to discuss because he was quite fascinated with this this tidbit that I brought up the other day in Andrew Roberts book on Napoleon. He brings up the fact that at Sandhurst, the military Academy at Sandhurst in the United Kingdom, they war gamed uh, Waterloo several times uh, starting sometime, I believe after the first world war. So war gaming is a practice that came into effect. Usually at the high staff level, the German general staff really played into this preceding world war one. It got real popular uh, after the turn of the century to figure out how to role play a battle in place or a war in place to figure out what your opponent would do and then how you would match that on the battlefield in real time. Napoleon was able to do this in his head, which is one of the amazing things about him as, as a military commander. So when Sandhurst wargamed Waterloo, Almost 100 years later, they lost. Napoleon won. And it's been wargamed several times at several military academies, including West Point. And every single time that they wargame it out, Napoleon wins. At flat out. Wellington never wins because it was not Wellington's battle to win. It was Napoleon's to lose. So that was a little fascinating thing that, that Luke thought that he wanted in the podcast. And, of course, I completely forgot about it. And I went off on this this thing that really doesn't particularly matter and it unfortunately went by the wayside it wasn't included and I feel the need that I should include it if if that's what if that's the point that he was trying to make the other aspect of it and this is the tangent off the tangent is that operation sea lion which is the nazi invasion of great britain which did not take place in the fall of 1940 after the battle of britain that was war game 2 also at sandhurst i believe in 1972 and you can you can actually Listen to a podcast about this on the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast. James Holland takes a look at this uh, in depth. They had a 48-hour war game about uh, 
how the Nazis would have invaded Great Britain. They assigned roles to everybody. And, of course, one of the problems was by that time uh, Hitler had taken over as the, the leader of the armed forces, not just as the head of state. So he answered to himself in roles that he should not have been doing. And even when they, they decided, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and kill Goering in a plane crash on the second day because that would make things more fair for the Germans, uh, the Germans still lost it. The, the Nazis were not able to, to land very many people on the beach because of the Royal Navy, and the ones that were on the beach were cut up piecemeal because of the defense of the, not just the Home Guard, but the standard British Army. So that's, that's what war games teach you after the fact is, you know, if, you, if you're going to, to play this out in real time, even though it's 100 years later, how would it happen? Uh, the, the Germans were successfully able to war game uh, the Schlieffen Plan in 1914 to a successful conclusion. And when they changed that war game in real time during the actual invasion of France, they lost. So if they had stuck to the war game, it more than likely, uh, you know, most of Europe would be speaking German right now. So that was just a fascinating tidbit. I didn't want to get too off topic, but I felt like I should add that because, like I said, Luke brought it up because he wanted me to mention it. And then I never got to it because it got off topic too much. Austerlitz, too. And... Um, and the, the the only Austerlitz was just famous because the they just didn't know what hit them. Like when Napoleon yeah. came out on the right flank and just crushed them over the ice, like it really was a true surprise. And the idea that Francis didn't do any reconnoitering, but you know stuff like that happens. And the same thing happened at the the Battle of Chancellorsville, where when Joe Hooker, who was the commander of the Union Army was, you know, like lounging on the front porch of some fucking farmhouse in Virginia <laughs> and was like you know, getting kind of reports and giving reports back and everything's doing fine. And all day his pickets were like, there is something happening on our right flank and we don't know what it is. And, you know, I think it was like 6 p.m. Stonewall Jackson just hits the, the Union right flank with an entire core. It was It was phenomenal that Jackson had moved that many men through the woods that fast it took all day but you know it what they left at 3 a.m but the idea that they had just run around the union army and hit them that hard the same thing happened at at austerlitz and napoleon had just and it wasn't even one core i think it was two cores where he just moved that was another thing that the movie didn't go into well i didn't expect them to but the the core idea okay so armies were very large very rarely larger than a core and a core was about 50 to sixty thousand. Uh, soldiers. Yeah, after after Rome, it was rare to see that. After Rome, it was very rare to see that, especially in Europe. You'd have to go to India or China to see those kinds of numbers, uh, particularly during the Middle Ages. But Napoleon Napoleon managed an, an army of fifty to sixty thousand people very well, which uh, you know is kind of the Battle of Caen um, in the Third Punic War or the Second Punic War in the Roman times uh, between uh, Hannibal and the Romans. That that was a fifty thousand man army. So yeah. to give you get you kind of a size, and, and every every general wants a con. Every every general wants to defeat that that solid and that righteous. And, and so once Napoleon got that under his hat, he uh, particularly during the uh, the invasion of northern Italy in seventeen seventeen ninety six, he figures, well, I can I can not just do this, but I can manage two corps and three corps and four corps. And pretty soon he's wielding like five corps. Five corps is crazy. And then the cores swell. The cores get bigger because they're taking cannons and they're taking their own infantry. They're taking their own um, infantry. They're taking their own cavalry units. 
And pretty soon, like, you know, when he's going to Russia, he's managing, it's not, it's not five corps. It's like five armies with five corps in each army. It's like 1.6 million men, which was the largest army ever fielded in history prior to 1914. Like, that's, that's how huge it was. And uh, the Americans would field an army, but not nearly that large. In Northern Virginia, I think that Grant only got up to about 900,000 troops. And, and, and mind you, in the age before, particularly before railroads, like everything is on a horse or a donkey or a man is carrying it. You know, and so you, need, you have to think about water. You have to think about food. You have to think about eggs. And, and Scott didn't go into this, and I, I didn't, we didn't expect him that. to. Yeah. We didn't need that. But to, to see the core level... Uh, the physical manifestation of it on screen during his battle of Austerlitz was incredible. And, of mm-hmm. course, you really saw it in Waterloo. And there were some scenes where the lines looked kind of thin, like there's, you know, like a two-man line. You're right. But, yeah, two, I mean, it's, it's, it's expense. Extras are expensive. And, and he did as best he could with the, with the CGI. I thought the CGI looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, with, yeah, it looked great. I mean, he, he hit it very well, which is important to do. Right, right. Uh, especially in Austerlitz. It was very well. It was very well hidden with the with the cannon shots. It was. I thought it was very well done. Yeah. The well. The I really appreciated the cannons in the film because Napoleon was raised in artillery when he went to school. He was class in artillery. He knew artillery like the back of his hand, and cannons were were not nearly as accurate as artillery is today with with rifled gunnery. But the they could still be devastating, mm-hmm. and then the cannon shot, you know, where you you fill the cannon with just buckshot, and like that is, and that's what he did when he when he suppressed the the royalist coup in Paris. He used buckshot, and it just slaughtered everybody in front of it. You know, that was another thing I really appreciated about it is that uh, Scott is he didn't shy away from showing you the horrible effects of, of the, the war, the brutal stuff that Napoleon did. It's not. Not at all on rose-colored glasses. You see him do some devious acts. He he had no problem taking a life. And when he was younger and he was in battle, he was actually, you know, he was fighting with his troops as, as a young lieutenant. And, you know, he got stabbed in the thigh yeah, uh, I read by that. a bayonet. Yeah. And, and he had taken life. He had killed people on the field of battle before. And then as a cannonader, you know, he he caused people to die by his cannons that he that he controlled. So he... He did have a first-hand knowledge of everything that he was doing and he was affecting as a military leader. And I don't, I don't remember the last person who was the, a head of state who commanded fields and uh, who commanded troops in battle. Um, but he, you know, he might be the last one, certainly on that scale, right? Like the last U.S. president to command troops in the field was George Washington when he suppressed the Whiskey Rebellion. So we don't we don't expect our heads of state to go. Yeah, not know. not after Richard the <laughs> Third. Right. <laughs> good good point. Good point. Richard the Third was the last king of England to die on the field of battle when he lost the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. In 2012, his body was found underneath a parking garage in Leicester. Um, anything else about the battle scenes? I. I, did, I thought, you know, with the exception of Waterloo, Waterloo I thought they were well. Yeah, I thought they well. were done well. Um, Borodino, you know, watching the march to Russia was rough. I mean, it's it was it was all right. I mean, it was all right. I mean, 
it has the same problem with that I do with Elba and St. Helena. But, you know, it's not like Dr. Zhivago. I mean, it doesn't seem, it's not painted as, like, the hellscape that I'm sure it was. You just see a couple dudes shivering and, like, smoking cigarettes. It doesn't seem like hell's raining on them from uh, the weather. Well, and again, I think that goes back to the editing problem and, and the shortage of time that we have. Uh, and- Josephine, it, it, it's really cold here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, show us. <laughs> like, we, like, it just looks like kind of sn- it looks like your average day in calgary you know what i mean like it's, it's just kind of snowy yeah. so it's not i thought the march wasn't and then the title just like you lost like six hundred thousand men it was like we didn't see that at all right right well so, so there's there, there were two things there that i didn't particularly see in the film which i wish showed at first like the march to moscow that was a horrible experience for everyone involved like it it took them everything to get to smolensk and they, they lost tens of thousands of soldiers just to get to Smolensk. Now, Smolensk is like the stepping stone to Moscow. And the effort to get from Smolensk to Moscow was like 10 times worse than what it took to get from, from you know, Warsaw to Smolensk. Like, it was a horrible experience, and, and that was during the summer. And so when they finally and, – and this was because the Russians burned everything. They – anything – of of use within I'd say five to ten miles on either side of the army, and it's a huge army marching in several columns in one direction. Right? It, they took everything. If if they couldn't carry the animal away, they slaughtered it on sight. Like they left nothing for Napoleon's troops. And then it it also didn't convey. You know, there's a lot of judgment of Napoleon of well, you stayed in Moscow for for three weeks too long. Well, that's that's kind of a misnomer too because. Napoleon had an almanac of every year of Russian history or Russian seasons going back 20 years. And he genuinely thought he had, he had four to five weeks because the almanac said the first snow wasn't going to happen until late November. So that's why he was there in mid-October. He was like, well, I've got three weeks to go back to Smolensk. I'm okay. Well, he wound up being wrong, but he, he, he wasn't wrong because he was being an obstinate fool. He was wrong because the, the almanacs, that was just a, a crapshoot. But by then, on their way back to Smolensk, the army was just, I mean, it was horrible. Like, you would have soldiers drop from frostbite, marching in line, and then the soldiers after them not care about moving the body out of the way of the path of the column. And then, of course, you've got what horses are left and what mules are left and carts are left trampling that body down to to where you can't tell that there's a body in the path. Anymore. And this this happened a lot. Um, and the if, if you are an animal person, the tens of thousands of horses that died on the way to Moscow, it was incredible. And when they went back to Smolensk, they weren't just eating their horses. I mean, there were almost no horses on their way back to Smolensk. And actually, I think that uh, Napoleon, once they got to Smolensk, they put Napoleon in a sled. And they tied reindeer to it. And that's how he got back to Warsaw within two or three days. Things were so desperate that his officers were like, we have to get the emperor out of here or the emperor is going to die too. That was the great fear. And what the hell would happen to France if the emperor died in Russia? 
Like that's catastrophic. And none of that was conveyed in the film. So I'm really hoping for the, the four hour version to sort of revisit a lot of these topics. Yes. So, um, is it time to bring up, uh, Josephine? Uh, I love Vanessa Kirby. Uh, she, I think she's great. Like, almost like two different movies when she's in the she's in the scene. And it ultimately, like, I don't. I kind of got bored with her scenes. Well, I know how this is going to go. Well, you and I just listened to about the first twenty or thirty minutes of the watch. Yeah, this was brought up, and and they brought this up, and they they talked about how it was kind of horny and perverted <laughs> and a psychosexual <laughs> Brian De Palma <laughs> type. <laughs> It was it was all right, but like the the problem I have is just I don't care enough. But the other side of that is like she was a massive part of his life, so you can't just leave her. I don't want another Sibylla, you know. I don't want another oh, Sibylla right, situation. Right, 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 I right, want right. her to be in the film. And so, so our listeners uh, tell us what the Sibylla situation um, is. In uh, Ridley Scott, uh, about fifteen years ago, made a movie called Kingdom of Heaven, and the theatrical cut was. Um, uh, Basically, excluding Sibylla, who was the queen of uh, Jerusalem back in the the Crusades, and she was not in the theatrical cut, and she was a very important person um, during the the fall of Jerusalem. So she wasn't in it, and then the director's cut happened, and it's like three hours, and then there's a lot more Sibylla, and it goes into the just generally the movie just goes into a lot more history of the the times, even though most of it isn't right, but it did make the film better. With her in it because it makes more sense, right? Right. Um, no, I think so that's it's, an accurate, of, it's, I think... A, it's the same situation here. So, if I'm picking between no Josephine or like two scenes with her, or more Josephine, I'm picking more because it's more accurate. You know what I mean? Like you know, like like you said, there was th- tens of thousands of letters he he wrote mm-hmm. to Josephine. You know, to to exclude her from the film is ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? But you get to the point where, like, every scene is, you know, just a ridiculous... It's softcore porn, right? <laughs> like, it's almost every scene until they divorce. Yeah. So... Which also just kind of, like you were saying, just comes out of the middle of nowhere. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, it's kind of built up, but subtly. And then they, he says, let's get a... Like, when he says, let's get a divorce, mm-hmm. and the next scene is, like, they're in the chapel and signing the thing, you know. Same with their marriage, really. Like they they're just like sitting out for coffee like twice and then they're married. But I'm I guess that's how it was two hundred years ago. Well, there's so the relationship was complicated and um <laughs> really yeah and I <laughs> I've actually I've read probably more about their relationship in previous books than I have about um, Napoleon's role as emperor uh, prior to this this book on Andrew Johnson and. I, I keep reading the same snippets out of Napoleon's letters to Josephine and vice versa because those are the famous snippets that have made it down through history. Yeah. And those are the snippets that, that the British yeah, were propagated using Yeah, propagated by the British. Exactly. Yeah. I tell you something, the British did not come off very good in this film. <laughs> no. You know, once again, it's like you said earlier, because he was Corsican. Right. British wouldn't do that to another foreign emperor, like publish his letters in, the, in their news. You know, it's... It's like that. So. Yeah, I think that was missing. I think that's true. And it's like, oh, the British are just being dicks. Like they wouldn't right. do that to the czar. No, no, they wouldn't. You know? Yeah, they wouldn't do that to the Pope, the no. King of Italy. Yeah, if other, they had a king. Other Italians would have done it to the Pope, but not the Brits. <laughs> yeah, not the Brits. And, and they weren't. You know, they were famously anti-Catholic. 
So the the Josephine situation is a little bit more drawn out. I have a lot of empathy for Josephine, but you also have to put it into context where because of the revolution, the Jacobins and the left who took power in the wake of the king's death absolutely thought that they were going to rebuild the world in a new order that was free of all this baggage that they had accumulated during the Ansan regime. And they did not see that France before 1789 was any different than the rest of the world. So just like the aristocracy in France was corrupt, de facto they assumed that aristocracy everywhere was corrupt. And if the clergy in France was corrupt, then de facto the clergy everywhere else is corrupt. This, this was the same thing when it came to laws. This was the same when it came to property. This was the same assumption that they made about relationships and sexuality and the, the roles of gender and all of these things that, that came into play. So one of the things, of course, that was, was famous in, in the wake of the fall of the king was like all of the affairs, of not, not Louis the, the 16th, who was famously loyal to Marie Antoinette, but all the kings before them and all the lovers that they had had and all of this, you know. So they're going around with a structured laws and morality and a religious ecclesiastical force to, to impose a will on people. And at the same time, they themselves are not exposed to that, to that fallout. And that led to frustration within, within Republican France that had an enormous amount of blowback. And so what that meant was the abolition of marriage on a religious scale. That led to everything being looted out of Notre Dame and Notre Dame being renamed a temple of reason where you could go to think about your creation instead of worshiping God. Like these, these were, this is why they renamed the calendar is to get all of the religious words out of the calendar. And the, the relationship status between Josephine and Napoleon reflects that where they got married at, you know, at the city hall, right? The, the hotel de Ville, they didn't get married in a, in a church. Uh, later on, they had their vows reaffirmed in a Catholic church to, so that the Pope would recognize it when he coronated them. Right? That was the only reason why that they, they did it. At the same time, Napoleon was, this is not saying it lightly, I hope, but he was a bit of, of a misogynist. Like he just thought, you know, the man is the man and the woman is the woman. So the gender roles were still very similar. And, and that was pretty much the same. But at the same time, of course, and this is pretty accurate when, when Napoleon in the film says, you know, I don't care about your, you know, what the modern day term is body count. I don't care who you've been with up until this, this point. I only care, you know, about our relationship between you and me. And that, that was very true of a lot of, a lot of people trying to restart culture and restart morality and set everything like Tyler Durden would say back to zero. <laughs> And we're going to reinvent society and culture, particularly in France, and this is going to catch fire all over the world. That wound up not happening. It wound up getting worse because of the Victorian era, era that we know now. 
but at the time that was a very genuine movement. It very also lightly touched upon this very horrible experience that Josephine had when her husband was arrested and executed and she was thrown into prison. And to think what she must have done to stay alive in a, in a prison of that nature, it just, it just, just sounded horrible reading about it in Andrew Roberts' book. It sounded like the worst place on earth to be. And Napoleon, of course, would know this because less than two weeks after Josephine was released from prison, Napoleon was arrested and he was put into the same prison. So they're kind of like two ships passing in the night type of situation. Now, he didn't have nearly the horrible experience that she had. There was a change of government. Those prisoners were released. You know, that was the, the consequence of that action. He didn't hold that against her for surviving because he saw himself as a survivor. So that part of the relationship made a lot of sense. And in terms of the, the kinkiness in the rest of the film, like I just saw that all as comedy. But Josephine was famous in Paris society for how she was able to seduce people. And a lot of people wrote about it before she met Napoleon. And there were people on Napoleon's staff as a consulate who had been with her in bed. And Napoleon knew that and did not care. And, but he was truly hurt when in Egypt, when this is another true part of the film, when he finds that the Hippolyte Charles was sleeping with Josephine. Like that, like he was really severely hurt. Now, with 20th century eyes, we can look back on that and say, why are you surprised? When, and even in the film, it was kind of, I mean, is Napoleon that much of an idiot? But he really did think that she was going to honor their marriage, so to speak. And it made all of that made sense. And it did, it did show the real effect was it took years for Josephine to learn to love him. It was not an immediate attraction. She, she really did it out of function, not a form. And it just took a very long time for her to like, you know what, you know, this guy, he's all right. Like he's not perfect. But he's all right. And when things go wrong, which means that she can't bear children, that's when things go horribly wrong for both of them. And I'm just speculating here, and I haven't read this in anything, but, you know, she, she may not have been able to bear children probably because of her experience in jail. You know, could have just had a, a very negative effect on her physiology, which just goes back to the point of it, it must have just been a, a completely horrible experience. And, yeah, she might have been wealthy, and, yeah, she might have been an aristocrat, and, yeah, she might have been this, that, or the other, but nobody deserves to be treated like that at any point in time in history. You know, so I thought the film did very well, and, and Kirby, I think, was the was the perfect actress to portray these types of emotions and notes in this very strange relationship. What did you think of their relationship? I thought it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was boring, but I would say it was I have no idea what even to think of. I've never really seen an equivalent of that on film, really. It was it wasn't like the worst, you know. It's not like horrible to watch. There's like four different times where there are like cuts to them just sitting there, and it takes like ten seconds for like someone to say something. Pretty odd to to watch, but once again, I wouldn't cut it out. I don't think you can tell the story of 
Napoleon's rise and fall without exactly. including her. I can't remember when she passed away, but in the film, it intimated that she passed away within the 100 days. Yeah, it was like 1814 or something. Yeah, when, when he got – he was on Elba for 10 months. He got back, and he made a roundabout way back to Paris, which you can still walk today. It's called the Route Napoleon. Lots of people do it every year yeah. <laughs> you know, on motorcycle. He's just, just too late. In the the criticism in the in the in the movie of you know nobody nobody thought to tell me that she had passed away. I'm like, well, you you know he was not very easy to reach when he was reconquering France. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was a little bit of a low blow. But anything else about that about the topic? About the topic, of their relationship of, of Josephine in general. Was, I really enjoyed the performance. I don't know if you're ever going to be able to put that relationship in a bottle. He was truly in love with her, and he never stopped loving her, and I absolutely believe that. He never would have divorced her if she was able to give him a child. And the other aspect of the relationship, which was not really touched on in, in the film, except for one scene, was Napoleon was extremely attached to his uh, son-in-law, Eugene. Eugene Beauharnais, Napoleon bathed that kid in light and took him on campaigns and had him on his staff as, as the first consul and used him and gave him titles and gave him stipends and just sent him all over Europe to learn. And he became very celebrated after the empire of, oh, this is, this is uh, Josephine Beauharnais' son. Like he, he was every, he, when Eugene Beauharnais walked into a room in Europe, everybody knew who he was. He was a celebrity. Very strangely enough, and this is even true of Napoleon II, his second wife, Marie Louise, the daughter of Francis I, when she went back to, to Vienna to raise her son, Napoleon II, nobody, nobody held it against him either. It was like the, the empire of aristocrats all over Europe were, were very critical of Napoleon. But they gave Yeah, the his, one thing they could get behind was, all was, right— Getting rid of yeah. him, but they, they seem to have really taken a backseat to his kids. And yeah. I don't know why that is, but like yeah, I, you typically don't see that. So. No, you don't. It, typically the, you know, the sons have to pay for the sins of the father. Uh, but it was in an, in, in Napoleon's case, like all of his siblings suffered. It was, it was horrible what his siblings went through after he died, but it was, it was at least nice that everybody was able to, to give Josephine's kids and Napoleon's kids gave him the benefit of the doubt. And, of right. course, his, his nephew became the emperor of France later on, Napoleon III. Anyway, next. All right. My major issue with the film is the, the time in exile. Uh, the, on Elba? Elba and St. Helena. Both of them. It's like five minutes on, on Elba. He, he shows up. He stares at the coast. I've been here 300 days. I want to come back. That is it. You don't see anything else. I, I, I wanted a little bit more. You know, it was, it was kind of like I was waiting to see what was going to happen on Elba. You know, like, I, you didn't get any time to reflect, like, him, you didn't see him reflecting on what he did, you know, on, on his losses or what he could do better. You just saw him like, I'm kind of tired of retirement. I want to I conquer Europe again. That was it. There was nothing more there, which I thought you could explore more because it's in exile, you know? So what, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think I thought it was completely mishandled. And yeah. I think that, I think you're right. I think we saw more of Napoleon on Elba in that movie, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. 
with <laughs> yeah. Chinkabiesel. Yeah, no, yeah, I was about to bring that up. Uh, about the, the prisons in France, the Chateau d'If. Yeah. Hello! Hey, Mon, come on! Good, you finally hit something. Being your friend is always an adventure. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Edmund Dantes had a promising future. And a love. I missed you so. That any man would envy. As soon as I can afford the ring, we'll I win. don't need a ring. I don't. You're under arrest by order of the magistrate of Marseille. I demand an explanation. It was you? Why are you doing this? It's complicated. I didn't quite understand why you were betraying him, but now, having seen his exquisite fiancée, I understand completely. I am innocent. This idea is that Edmond Dantes has been executed. My advice, take solace in the comfort of your good friend. No! You were a soldier. Teach me the knife, the sword. Oh, good! Too good. Let's walk of escape. In return for your help, I offer something priceless. The treasure of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Follow the clues. You are wealthier than any man I have ever heard of. What do you want to buy? Revenge. I will change my identity. I shall become a count. Ladies and gentlemen, the Count of Monte Cristo. Count on revenge. Death is too good for them. They must suffer as I suffered. I'm a count. Not a saint. The Count of Monte Cristo. Like, you saw more of Napoleon and Elba in a movie not about Napoleon. You know? It's... And that's the opener. I mean, it's a pretty strong opener. Yeah, and it didn't, it didn't go in. And characterize it. I, he had more characterization in, like, the first ten minutes of him showing um, Napoleon in that movie than you had in the first hour of this film. Right. You know, it shows what he wants... And shows how he gets it, and I, th- I, I thought that w- that movie did a great job portraying it more effectively than this film, really. Yeah, and the, that leads into another point I'm going to get later. The The Count of Monte Cristo is is an excellent film that that goes through the fear of the Bonapartes and yeah, uh, yes, in Charles the Charles the Tenth and and Louis the Eighteenth uh, era of France, and and particularly the book The Count of Monte Cristo is of course by Alexander Dumas, whose father was. A, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, keep going. Whose father was a general who fought for Napoleon. So that that's why there's like this Bonapartist uh, connection to it. In that film, in, in Cana Monte Cristo, there is more fear felt for Bonaparte coming back right. than there is in this movie. Right. It's like it, it feels like everyone is just scared shitless that Napoleon's coming back. Mm-hmm. And all you see in, in this film uh, is just like, Oh, he's back. Stop him with like one core, not even a core. Just like s- send like one regiment. One regiment. Yeah. yeah. So, go stop him, and then I don't, I don't know. Like later on, it's just like, oh, he's he's gonna come here. Just I don't know. Send some people to go fight him off. Yeah. Who's the guy? Oh, oh yeah. Just get Wellington and just just throw him there. That's what it was presented as. It, and it looked kind of kind of by accident, you know. And I completely understand. It. You have time constraints, but 
you know, going back to Elba, he was trying to enforce the treaties at Tilsit. They would not, there, there was so much left out, and I get it, time constraints, but, you know, he met with Prince von Metternich, who was the prime minister of Austria and the foreign minister, and they tried to hammer out a deal. And what it, what it came about to was, well, you have to give all this territory that you've conquered, you have to give it back to these countries. And Napoleon was like, look, I don't mind giving back territory that I've conquered back to you as, as part of this agreement. But you're asking me to give back parts of France to other nations that were a part of France before I took over. Like, I can't, I can't give you something that I didn't conquer. Like, this, this place, like Alsace, that's been a part of France for three centuries. And you're asking me to give it to Germany? No. You know, he ran back to Paris and he raised an army and that led to this amazing situation, which I, I really wish was in the film. And I don't think that anyone has ever filmed it. And that is the defense of France that took place over a three month period when Austria and Prussia and some parts of Russia invaded France and Napoleon only had one core and he did this amazing feat of military movement where he was able to go to one, to the other, to the third, back to the one, to the second, to the third, and march them back and forth through all of these valleys in, in, in eastern France and fought off three huge armies of 106,000 troops each. And this went on for, for months. And the man never slept more than an hour or five a night. He was in the saddle most of the day. And in the end, he, he won all of those battles against his enemies. But it was, it was the very similar situation to what happens uh, 50 years later in the American Civil War, which is when Grant was following Lee through Virginia. And every time Grant just hit Lee, Lee beat the shit out of him. And just dead Union soldiers all over the place. And Lee would win the battle. But when Lee did not have the ability to replace the men that he lost, and Grant could, so the next day, even though he lost, Grant said, okay, everybody pack up. We are following Lee. And that became the way that Grant won. And it's a very similar situation where Napoleon was winning all of these battles, and yet he could not win the war. He was just numerically overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so he retreated. Finally, he retreated back to his house, uh, Fontainebleau. And it was there when couriers going back and forth. I'm like, okay, you know, you can go to Elba. You can take these people with you. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll abdicate. Fine. He was not happy with it, of course. So he, he went to Elba and here's the part that nobody talks about, uh, which is the part that you really enjoyed was Napoleon didn't sit on Elba in his chair and drink his iced tea and look out to the coast of Italy every day. Napoleon became a force to be reckoned with in Elba, just like anywhere he went. He rearranged the law code. He rebuilt the streets. He he had uh, he started public works. They built sewers. They built fountains. There are fountains in Elba that work to this day that provide fresh, clean water to the populace. He reorganized the defense. He, he he did so much in Elba that there were he changed the island forever. And a lot of people found that it, it didn't need improvement for the next century because of everything that he had did in the ten months that he was there. 
and he found town time to read, and he entertained visitors, and he did X, Y, and Z. But also the film didn't go into, and I thought this was a huge hole in the film, why the, why the hell did he go back? What was his purpose in going back? And that was not rung at at all. And there, there were two major reasons. The, the first was he was hearing from a long line of people that he had an enormous amount of trust in that Louis XVIII, who was the brother of the dead king, Louis XVI, the reason there is no Louis XVII was Louis XVI's son was locked away in the Bastille and died there. And it was years before people asked themselves, oh, hey, where's the Prince Regent? They literally locked him away, threw away the key, and fucking forgot about him. Like they couldn't even find his body. That's how badly they forgot about him. So Louis XVIII says, I'm taking the name of my two dead brothers. And he dated his reign from the death of who we would call Louis XVII, who was never coronated, right? So this is the guy that's running the show, and he's trying to reverse the revolution. And we can say a lot of things about Napoleon, about how he tried to undo a lot of the revolution. In the fact that he was a dictator and he was an emperor and he enforced a kind of aristocracy after the revolution, that is true. But the other thing that is true is that there were definite modes of virtue the revolution brought that Napoleon protected forever. The judicial system based on judges, that exists in France to this day. And so does the Napoleonic Code, and not just there, everywhere, including you know the basic law code of Louisiana uses Napoleonic Code. There were tons of things that were guaranteed, and the real kicker was that Louis XVIII was trying to take a lot of these things away, and then the big one that scared the shit out of everybody was that he was going to re-recognize the Catholic Church and start giving them their property back. And that just sent fear throughout all of France. And when Napoleon heard all of these things, particularly uh, like, oh yeah, where the church is going to get their status back, like he signed a he signed a peace agreement with the Pope. But the peace agreement was, you can come back, but you don't get any of your shit. And you have no expectations of tithes, and the people aren't going to pay you anything. When he heard that, he was like, I've got to go back to France, because only I can save it. And that is why he left Elba. And that was completely left out in the movie. Yeah, it, it, it depicted it as more of like a selfish reason for Napoleon. It was like which we shouldn't discount, but definitely that's there. Oh yeah, but like there's that's that's presented as the only reason. It was like I'm bored, I want to conquer some more. That's what was presented. Yeah, yeah. But once again, it's time constrained and all that. But could have said they're trying to enforce shit the revolutionaries didn't want. France is reverting. You you have a scene where someone he reads a letter. Even France is reverting. You got to come back by like one of his one of the Bonaparte loyalists. Mm. You know, you could have seen because even that was shown in kind of Monte Cristo. It was shown yeah. in that movie. It was. He, yeah. he hands a letter to some guy in France and it was shown there. There could have been more on Elba. And that's one of my most anticipated scenes in the movie was his time on Elba. Because I thought that would be the most character rich part of the film. Time in exile. So this also goes on to St. Helena. Yeah. So I also thought it was done just as poorly. You get... Maybe like two scene, one scene, maybe two. I, I can't remember. It's just like an establishing shot of Saint Elena, and then the next scene is him chilling by the by the shore, and he, and he and he fucking dies. That's it. 
six years and you get like five minutes. I know you could have done, they could have done more. What are your thoughts on St. Helena? It was a lost opportunity. Yeah, it's, I, I really, they could have done so much more. My main problem is those two scenes and this specific, his presence isn't felt in the end. And he just falls over. I guess that he was trying to go for the, you know, the Vito Corleone in the, in the orange garden. And he just falls over. He died in his bed and he goes and he has the last couple words. I don't want to read those. I want to hear that. You know, I could have gone on a couple more scenes of over time, him looking at the ocean and just thinking or, you know, reading a letter that he gets or, you know, something that's more reflective before he, he dies. And it's incredibly quick. Like the Battle of Waterloo was seven minutes earlier. And then he dies within a span of the next 15 minutes. I thought it was really not handled very well, him just falling over. I did like the lie at the end when he said, I burned down yeah. Moscow, not the... Because he had denied it for so many years, because yeah. uh, that was the rumor. And then, of course, you could look at it of, well, he burnt it down because he was there, and they did it in a reaction to, to him taking Moscow. But, you know, whatever. But he, he was caught constantly lying about how many men he lost in each battle yeah. and how many how many of the enemy that he, that he killed in battle. And so he, he was known to stretch the tr- truth. Now, how much of that was known at the time, I'm not sure. But, of course, he was not well-liked throughout European upper class, so it, it doesn't particularly... They all probably saw him as a liar. But it, but it, it did... He suffered horribly when he died. He had stomach cancer. Yeah. And he had stomach cancer. It was the same, I think, four or five people, including uh, his son. One of his illegitimate sons, he had two. And then one of, and, and his legitimate son, Napoleon II, and then his nephew, Napoleon III, they all died of stomach cancer. And Napoleon III died when he was like 80-something years old. He was like 85 when he finally claimed him. But it was really, it was really a horrible situation. And he, he lingered for, for it was, it was months-long illness, and then for a few weeks it was bad, and the last, the last week it was particularly very bad. And it, it's a it's a golden opportunity to have them, you know, lying down in bed and then saying those last three lines instead of showing them up on a screen, like you were saying, which was France, France Army, Army Josephine, Josephine, which I thought was brilliant. And and then, you know, with, with you know, you don't even have to have a last breath. You just have closing of the eyes. And then like they did back then, you stop the clock. You know, you could have heard that. Of course, that's a trope that you've seen in movies before. But I thought that was much more appropriate than than the Vito Corleone. Yeah, I'm just dropping. That goes back to the whole mafioso accusation. Yeah, the Corsican, Corsican thug. thug. Yeah. <laughs> that also leads into the presence of Napoleon. I felt he only had presence in the battle scenes, and then everything else he doesn't present it as. You know, the wind and the lion. Yeah, it's Sean Connery. The Sean Con- from the first scene onward, you know, he's presented incredibly well wrong figure and then there's only the battle scenes it's like half the film he's shown as that in in some other parts he isn't shown as well or depicted as well once again i wasn't there so right well i mean he was conveyed sort of uh in history he's conveyed as a bit of a whiner yeah so i don't know if that's you know propaganda from the british or if he was a little bit of a bitch sometimes it's hard to believe that he could accomplish so much by being not, like, the greatest person. Such a subset of, like, a character. You know, why was he great? Why was, no, he, why was he great? Is like, is it just because of his military tactics? Is, is that it? 
is it, or is it because of his, his character? So I don't I don't know if there was a possible way to present him a little bit better, and specifically the in, in the Josephine scenes. Really, Th- those come to mind when I when I think of you know the his character pre- presentation. Well, and there there seemed to be I, I think that's true, and yeah. there, there seemed to be a lost opportunity to convey everything that Napoleon did for France, which was which was really substantial, and I I don't think that it was. It was conveyed at all. Like it's it's the great opportunity for just even a montage. Okay, so you're talking like during the Napoleonic Code, Napoleon met, I think for like two or three hours every day with this council of seven judges and lawyers who were going through all of the laws of France. The law had been revamped during the Revolution, but it had not been codified, and so they they went through every section of the law, and. He actively participated in the discussion about what laws were fair, what laws were just, and did a, a complete relative to this and to that, what is fair. He was very interested in, in having as fair of a law system in France as, as could possibly come about. And then he instituted it throughout the entire empire. Now, you can look at that and then look at the fact that he re-allowed slavery in Haiti, and that is definitely not good. So there is a contradiction there. But to just, like you say, just sum it up in terms of his military victories is completely unfair. Napoleon did things for France that had been outstanding for not just dozens of years, but probably centuries. France was so behind by 1789. If you look at the other countries, their, their absolutist monarchy had had turned everything into a single rule autocracy. And that autocracy had finally funneled down to a person, Louis the Fourteenth, who just did not fucking care. Dylan confused Louis the Fourteenth, known as the Sun King, with Louis the Sixteenth, the king executed during the revolution. Just thought you should know about being a king. And didn't care about his royal prerogative to be a king. And didn't care that his prerogative meant the lives and deaths of his subjects. That doesn't say anything about, um, you know, he loved his wife. He really loved his kids. He was a great father and a wonderful husband. All of those things are true. But he was also an uncaring autocrat who had no conception about what the, the people of France were suffering from. And Napoleon did. And you could say that he garnered a some sort of, not antipathy, but a, a lack of empathy for what his what the citizens were going through at the end. And he put himself in front of the citizens of France when it came down to uh, his twice being exiled. You could say that he just lost touch with that type of reality. But I don't think that there was ever a moment from, I want to particularly during the consulship, like he put too much work and effort into running France. The man worked like 18, 20 hours a day for, you know, almost 15 years. And I think that he cared deeply about the people of France. And I think that is why the people of France still to this day honor him and look to him is because of how he served them. Like, like a lot of world leaders, it's not black and white. Like I remember when I went to China in the late nineties, you know, they, they said the party looks at Mao as 70% effective. And I just laughed at this, the idea that you could put a number to it. Like the Great Leap Forward is a oh, yeah. is is a backwards moment for China, but without Mao, there would be no communist China. 
there would be no increased literacy rate. There would be no, you know, laws against water pollution. There, there was a lot about China that drastically improved while he was the dictator. Now, whether and you the consequences throw, of the that. consequences of that are pretty severe, yeah. and it's the same with Napoleon. It's like at the end of the credit sequence in uh, in the movie about how you know three million Frenchmen died in, in, in his reign and during his reign trying to defend. I thought that was really unfair to talk about it's how many Austrians and Prussians died trying to conquer him. I thought that was extraordinarily unfair. You know, or the Brits. My God, the Brits spent so much money fighting Napoleon. It is it is ungodly. It is crazy how much money, and it was all on credit. Let's go to the Bank of England, get another loan, send it to Russia. The Brits were willing to defeat the De- Napoleon down to the last continental European. They didn't care yeah, yeah, they hated how him. many Portuguese died fighting the French or Spanish or Austrians. They fucking hated him so much. It was crazy. I would have liked more St. Helena. I, w- I would have liked more movie. What do you got next? This is great. No, that, that's that's it, really. Um, that The last couple points was uh, was the ending and the character, but which we both touched on on in the St. Helena section. His so. presence, his presence, yeah. Presence. And what he meant to France. That's another great point, like what he means to France. That wasn't really depicted. No. No, it's like, what, what did he do for France? It's not seen aside from battles. There's no scene of him redefining the legislature or changing the government system. or It's all seen as a power grab, which it was, mm. but it wasn't in service, and it wasn't solely in service of himself. He was doing it to try and make France a better country. Right. So you don't, right. you don't see that. And like you said on St. Helena, he, he fixed the damn island. The Elba. Elba. Yeah. Elba. That's well, so, I mean, I know you haven't been there, and I, and I know how you feel about France because you took two years of French. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I get it. And, of course, being raised in, in Canada, you had French classes. Yes. You know, your mom and I, in the late 90s, we, we went to Paris, and we went to – the Invalide, La Invalide. And the Invalide is, is, used to be a hospital for war veterans. And Napoleon was buried on St. Helena. They wouldn't even mark his grave because they didn't want to put Napoleon on it because that was, that was his regal name. So they weren't going to put his regal name on the tombstone because that would be recognizing that he was the emperor. And they didn't want to put Bonaparte on it because that would have identified him as a citizen of France. And it's a very, very complicated situation because he was, he was an unrecognized hostage of the British Empire, right? So they just left nothing on his tombstone. So after, after Napoleon III comes to power, this is crazy. I think it's 1846. They, he negotiates the return of Napoleon's body. And he is they, – they re – do the entire hospital, the Invalide, as a monument to him and his family. And it is the focal point of all of France's achievement as a republic. And you walk into the Invalide, and yes, it looks like a, like a cathedral. It, it, it looks stunningly amazing. And that's after you've been to the Louvre, after you've been to Notre Dame, it really takes your breath away. I have video of it. And on the left is his brother, Joseph Napoleon. And on the right is his son, the King of Rome, who passed away. I think he was 22 years old, unfortunately. And in the center of the Invalide, under this enormous cupola dome, 
there is a, a hole cut into the floor. And the hole cut into the floor is goes into the crypt. It's an open crypt, with a, which is an oculus. And as, as you look over into it, there is one of six sarcophagi, one inside of the other. And Napoleon is in the very inside of it. And you can only reach it if you go behind the altar into the staircase that goes into the, to the bottom of it. And the entire inside of the oculus crypt is a, it's almost like a Greek mosaic of all of the emperor's famous moments throughout history. Signing the Treaty of Tilsit, you know, a becoming first consul, being coronated. It was all these wonderful moments of his life. And ringed around his sarcophagus, which is larger than this room, are all of his battles. Jenna, Austerlitz, Toulon, so on. Just ringed around the whole thing. You know, this is how the French feel about, about their most famous person in history. It really says a lot about everyone else who's buried there, not just his brother and not just his son, but behind him to the right on the main level, Ferdinand Foch, the marshal of the Allied armies in 1918, is buried there too. And it's a full-size bronze sculpture of eight Allied soldiers, French soldiers, uh, carrying Foch on their shoulders as if he's, they're carrying him away. Uh, from the battlefield, he's buried underneath. It's, it's similar to Christopher Columbus's uh, a grave in, in Seville. And the idea that they put Foch there next to Napoleon should tell you how the French feel about Foch. He's incredibly important in, in French history. Like you were telling me the other day that they, somebody, the publicity department, I'm sure at Columbia Pictures, they put a poster of the film on the Arc de Triomphe. That was an arch that took 20 years to build that Napoleon started that he had never finished in his lifetime. That was paused several times because of, because of construction projects costing too much. You know, that was his arch that he was building, not, not for himself, but for France, for France's armies to march through after they had returned from victory in a very Roman type of way, because that's how they saw the French empire. It was a, it was an extension or a reliving of the Roman Roman Empire, which is strange because they they saw themselves as recreating the Roman Republic. And so that change from first consul to the emperor. So does was, every every other country in Europe. Well, <laughs> yeah, but it was it was yes because of Constantinople and because of uh, Moscow being the you know, the third Rome and so forth. But they really did feel like the republic like in America like we're we're rebirthing the republic we're rebirthing yeah. you know the constitutionalism of the of the 1800s 1700s and 1800s was the return of these roman concepts of virtue and citizenship which led to an empire which will give us glory and unfortunately you know wound up ending the same way yeah so in terms of biographical film in terms of like an epic where does this sit with the other epics? Because this this had a grand scope, mm -hmm. and it had very epic things about it. I don't know, I don't know how epic it was when I think of the bridge on the River Kwai or Cleopatra or Ben Hur. Like those are epics. Was this an epic film? On scale, yes. With epics, there's most of the time there's an ensemble cat. In this film, there's there's two characters, and that's it. 
Spartacus, you have Spartacus, all his, his circle, right? Like, you know those characters. You see them throughout the film, right? And Braveheart, I can't remember their names because they're too Scottish. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's like the father and the son in the battle and Kingdom of Heaven. It's, what's his name, who plays Lupin and... Harry Potter and his right, Neeson, the hospital and, are, yeah. And Balian and Luke is referring to David Thewlis, known for his role as Professor Lupin in the Harry Potter franchise. Billa and all those people, and then you know, it's. I think in scope, it's a, it's an epic, but in execution, it's, it's almost lacking events to call it an epic. So this, this goes back to the idea of I think this would have worked better as a six or an eight part series because there were, there were people that hung around Napoleon who were in his orbit for a very long period of time who helped him achieve the success, the success that he achieved. For first and foremost is like the Abbe Sayez, who used to be a clergyman in the church, who became a politician and was, was huge on the Roman Empire and knew everything about Republican government and really did it you know, wrote the Constitution, rewrote the Constitution like five times. And, and he was involved in the coup of Brumaire, right? This is a guy who was really, really close to Napoleon for years. And eventually he became too dangerous to have around because Napoleon was like, well, he wrote five constitutions. What's to say that he's not going to write a sixth one and get rid of me, right? So he had to basically force C's to retire. And, you know, another one was uh, Kalen Kaur. Uh, which they actually, uh, during the film, Kalen Kaur was, they actually described him. They put his name on the screen. Kalen Kaur was around Napoleon the entire time, never left his side. You know, and when Kalen Kaur, like, he did not do this, but when you have someone like Kalen Kaur to like, hey, Napoleon, you can't win this. He's the type of person Napoleon would listen to. And he's, he's very fleeting in this film. Like, he, he pops up and pops down, but you got to remember who he is. And then you have very duplicitous personalities that, like, I can't believe they got so little airtime. Like, uh, I've told you before about Talleyrand. Talleyrand, my God, like, you talk about a survivor. Talleyrand served the king, served the National Assembly, served the Reign of Terror, served the different forms of the Directory, served the, the Committee of Public Safety before that, served Napoleon during, during the dictatorship, during the consulate, during uh, the the emperorship uh, was retired because Napoleon finally said, you know, you're, I think he said, you're a shit in silk stockings and I'm going to get nowhere with you. And then Talleyrand started absolutely scheming with Austria against Napoleon to get rid of him and put him onto Elba. And then when, when Napoleon comes back, Talleyrand sticks to the Bourbons and winds up winning and then serves the Bourbons. Now, if you're, if you're Louis the 18th, what the fuck do you want Talleyrand around for? He's been serving the revolution for 20 years, but he was absolutely indispensable. There were tons of people like one person I kept hoping would, would turn around was Marshal Ney. Marshal Ney was, was a general that came up with Napoleon served in almost every battle that he ever fought with. Marshal Ney knew Napoleon backwards and forwards could predict his commands and although Napoleon never really had a very high opinion of Ney, Ney is always there. And when Napoleon gets into trouble and goes back and forth during the invasion of France in 1814, Ney used to be a field marshal commanding an entire corps. And then now he's all the way down to like a divisional commander and he's, he's, he's running like 3,000 troops. Never complained about it. Never said this is, this is below my prestige to, to manage such a small army. He just did what Napoleon asked. Then, then uh, he managed to work his way into the Bourbons. And when Napoleon came back from France, 
Ney abandoned the Bourbons, went back to Napoleon, managed the army all the way to Waterloo, knowing what was going to happen. And Ney was one of the guys telling Napoleon on the day of the battle, this is going wrong. You've got you've to get onto the field of battle immediately. You've got to... He was telling Napoleon, you are violating your own tenets and your own military maxims. Like, we're going to lose this battle if you don't get your act together. And after that, Bourbons couldn't trust him anymore. You could have in a whole episode in this 12-part series just with Marshal Ney. You know, he was a fabulous guy. That's an unfortunate consequence of the time constraint that we're, yeah, we're in. Yeah, another thing that makes a, a film an epic status. A lot of times you get time to sit in the world. Cleopatra, you really do feel the world in Cleopatra. In Lawrence of Arabia, th- those shots of... The vistas in the desert. I mean, it makes you feel like you're in the desert. Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut, when he, Balian's on the, on the mound and he's just looking up at the stars, you're sitting and feeling in Jerusalem. Napoleon, you don't really have that. Barry Lyndon did it better. I mean, I'm not saying Barry Lyndon is better than Napoleon. I don't think it is. But you feel like you're part of in that shitty world in, in Barry Lyndon. I don't know how they did it, how, how Kubrick did it, but the interiors look amazing in that film. And it's, it's like the same time period, and yet it, it, it's done better 50 years ago, especially with the interiors. And the world building at Barry Lyndon is better than in Napoleon. The only thing that is done better in terms of, like, world building is the costumes. The costumes is, uh, are done better in Napoleon. But I don't really feel like I'm in, I'm in 1804. Mm. Well, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I think that Barry Lyndon was actually nominated for an Oscar for its costume design. And I thought the costume design in Napoleon was, was exceptional. Yes. I thought it was wonderful. Yes. And, of course, uh, Josephine actually is, is the person who really popularized the, the, what they call the Empire bust line, where the dresses stop at the, the high stomach and then flow out from there. That's called the Empire. And you, you see that in... Almost any Jane Austen movie, you know, Kira Knightley is wearing an empire dress. And Josephine didn't create the dress. She just wore it. But everyone bought it because they went to a party and saw Josephine wear it. So to see it in this film was just amazing. Of course, Vanessa Kirby is the right person to wear it. Mm -hmm. It's good that you brought up Kubrick. Because, of course, Kubrick wrote a script for a Napoleon movie. That was lost for 50 years, and this reporter from, I think, Premier Magazine went and found it in a salt mine in, in Kansas, where they keep all of the film in this very, strangely enough, in a salt mine, because there's no, there's no risk of anything set, being set on fire, right? And he, he found the script, and, and somehow it leaked online, and uh, you can find it. There's actually a website, whose name escapes me, but they have all of these screenplays online, so I, I got it. I downloaded it. I read it about two years ago, Napoleon by Stanley Kubrick. And I have to say, I was really underwhelmed. I did not think. Well, with, with a lot of Kubrick films, you kind of got to sit on it. You know what I mean? Rarely did I enjoy a Kubrick film on first viewing. So maybe that would have been a film that grows on But you. Barry Lyndon was hit you the first time? Yeah, but I enjoyed Barry Lyndon because the, the battle scenes in that were great. The world building was amazing. And it kept me engrossed in the film. The only thing in Napoleon that kept me engrossed is Joaquin's performance and the battle scenes. That's it. There was almost no world building that I felt. Well, hopefully we'll get that in the four-hour cut. But, you know, I think that Kubrick is is one of these guys where it's going to be a storyboard scenario. Like, can you imagine reading the screenplay to 2001? Oh, no. I mean, there's almost no dialogue. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Right? So I I just take it on granted that what we would have seen would have been better. Would have been a a dramatic departure from... Mm -hmm from the script. 
when it when it comes to like you were saying the world building, and I particularly like how you brought up Bailey and Evelyn being on the Mount of Olives, thinking about his dead wife and his, you know, his murdered brother. Yeah, I, God has abandoned me. God has abandoned me. It, that that is world building and yeah. character. But and people criticize that movie for not having great characters. But that is one scene that I'll point to, and I guarantee you that wasn't in the theater theatrical release. Yeah, no, I don't think. Well, I don't think that it was. I can't. I can't remember. That was a cut down. But Kingdom of Heaven definitely gives you a better sense of what the world was like in 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 eleven. I think it was 1150s, 1167. 1187. 1187. The 1180s, right. And here he tried to tried to give you a sense of what things were like in the 1790s and eight, in early 1800s. And I don't I don't know if he succeeded all that much. I do I don't know how you would introduce scenes that would put you into the character's mind as a frame and reference of the time they live in. I think that's, I think that's going to be extraordinarily hard to do. And if I were, if I were to choose a few places, I would say spending some time with Josephine in jail, which was a large part of the character of the person she became when she was released from jail is that trial by fire of that horrible experience that she went through. And when it comes to Napoleon, what was the formative experience for him? Because for Balian, it was going going to the mount and praying to God and asking him for forgiveness. And with all the sins that he committed, what do I do now? What do I do now that I have risked yeah. my life to come here to the Holy Land? And failed to, to get what I, I wanted. Failed to get what I want. What do I, I protect do the people of Jerusalem. Right. I mean, of course, it's in the movie, the storytelling. That's the point of the character in the movie. But. Right. Right. Well, that's the character arc, and that's if you're going to convey something that happened in real life on the big screen, you have to find that emotional connection. And I think that Scott does that in most of his films. Yes. And Kingdom of Heaven might be the best example of that. What you do in this film to convey that from Napoleon, I don't know. I, I find that very, very hard to guess. Well, well, to start, expand on Elba and Helena. But I know that's the end of his life. Well, maybe you start that as a flashlight, Elba, in the beginning. That would be horrible, and <laughs> that I, I that would be horrible. That would be, that would be you, bad. You've never been big fans of flashbacks. I, I hate the whole um, start at the end is like three weeks ago, and then it's, I don't like that. I, I never liked that because I think it's just a cheap way to build ch- tension. The bookmarking of stories, I never really liked it. It takes an extraordinary amount of um, story and talent and directorial ability to keep me hooked on that type of cliche trope and intro to the story. You, you can, I like how it started. It hooks you in with the French, well, with the end of the revolution that you start in an event in his life that happened, which he wasn't present for. He wasn't at the execution of Marie Antoinette. You could have started at some point of in his life when he was participating in the revolution. You know, you see his, his ideals in the beginning and, and then eventually, in the midway through the film, you see his ideals when he's emperor, and then you see that uh, before Waterloo at on Elba, and then after Waterloo at St. Helena. Those are just key moments where it would be great to expand upon his character and how that changes. But you, you don't see that. You see him just going on to the next battle. That's a missed opportunity. Incredible. Like, I, I don't even know why they even bothered 
other than the shock value, there's no point in even showing Marie Antoinette's death. Yeah, there's no point just to hook you. It has no lasting effects on the story in the movie. Uh, if, you're, if you're world building, then it has lasting effects on France in and, general. And they didn't even bring up the fact that, that Napoleon wound up, wound up marrying Marie Antoinette's cousin. You know, it's just sort of everybody's sort of breathed, you know, they breezed over that. One thing probably as a, as a final note that I want to bring up is I've brought up the American Civil War before. I think it's really important to, to convey that, you know, there is a civic impact that Napoleon had on, on the world. With the Napoleonic Code, yeah, it's his legacy. It's his legacy, and, and and how France affected. Very unlikely that there would be an Italy as we know it today without Napoleon, or that there would be a Germany as we know it today without Napoleon, because he destroyed the Holy Roman Empire and he created the Confederation of the Rhine, and the Confederation of the Rhine pretty much became that which Prussia dominated in the 1870 war, which put his nephew into exile in Britain. That would be the political consequences of his life. But there's there's a military kind of like you can't find a fucking photograph of anyone who's called himself as a general for the next hundred years who doesn't have their arm in their jacket. Yeah. You know, you look at any photograph of any American general during the Civil War, they all got their little their little arm in their jacket. Yeah. You know, these West Point. Well, you don't go to West Point without studying one Napoleon battle. Right. It, yes. They, they study uh, his tactics to this day, which which are all still relevant. The long term consequence of Napoleonic warfare would outlast this battle tactics would outlast the change in technology, the move from the musket to the bolt action, to the magazine, to the automatic weapon. And they're still trying Napoleonic tactics and to move in order in battle in groups that went all the way up to 1914 and 1915. When all of a sudden everybody recognized that those tactics don't work with a Maxim machine gun. Yeah. Those days, it literally took 100 years for everybody to get away from that. On No, but even before that, you know, like the proto-Napoleon uh, tax is still based on just standing in lines, and, which has existed far. But the only, the only reason his tactics aren't used is because of the advent of technology, progression of technology, the, of warfare. You can't exactly hold outdated tactics against the, new technology. The technology killed the tactics. Yeah, but it kills everything. It, it, it does. It evolves. But the world, the world changes because of the recognition of his brilliance. Yes. The dictator Santa Anna, who ran Mexico for 25 years off and on, people called him the Napoleon of the West because he, he had conquered all of New Spain using, using a homegrown army. When you look at, for our local situation, if you look at the, the, Texas Independence War, call it whatever you want. It's a stealing a province away from Mexico, forming a new country out of it. Sam Houston, everyone's talking about Napoleon. Sam Houston was a Wellington fan. When Santa Ana invaded Texas with the largest army that had ever seen North America past the Revolutionary War, Sam Houston had this ragtag bunch of people, including one-third of them were native-born Latino Texans, they kept falling back and falling back and falling back. And the entire time, people were so upset at Sam Houston because he was falling back from San Antonio after their, their brethren were killed at the Alamo, killed at Goliad, killed at all these little skirmishes. And the entire time, 
Sam Houston's not thinking about Napoleon. Santa Anna is thinking, I am the Napoleon of the West. I am going to conquer this. I'm going to slaughter all my enemies before me. I'm going to force a political situation through my military will, which is Napoleonic way of thinking for sure. Sam Houston was a Wellington fan. I'm going to fall back. I'm going to fall back. I'm going to fall back until the ground suits me. And then once I find that ground, I'm going to let him come to me. And then I'm going to work very hard to defeat him. And that is what Sam Houston did at the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836. That is only 25 years after, after Waterloo. That's 11 years after Napoleon dies. Like that is, that is within living memory of the people who fought in the Mexican War in the 1840s and the children of the Napoleonic Wars will be the people who come to America to witness the military action that's happening during the Civil War. So this, this is something that, that's real that lasts an entire century. And I'm, I'm not expecting Ridley Scott to put that in a bottle and show it on screen. You know? But there, there did seem to be the story did not unveil the enormous impact the man had on lives for, for the next yeah, it's hard to do. 150 years. It's very hard. I can't really think of another uh, historical epic that does it that way. The only one that comes to mind is Cleopatra. But, you know, even even Kingdom of Heaven, it's hard. You can't really have that in there either. It's Napoleon has such a crazy impact on the world itself, not just in like one area of world in Asia Minor. He had it in all over Europe, effects lasting like hundreds of years. Your systems being based around him, it's it's hard to even you know, think of a world without him. That, that's kind of what is lacking in the, in well, the film. Just like for two millennia, people always going back to Julius Caesar, even in Napoleon's mm-hmm. time, because he was he was that effective. And I think that Cleopatra does a very good job of just showing just Pre- how Ju- Caesar's presence. Yeah, Caesar's presence. And then you you know you go to to France, or if, if you watch newsreels in in the 1940s about the Germans marching through the Arc de Triomphe, and just how fucking insulting that was yeah. for the French to watch the Nazis walk through the Arc de Triomphe. That, was, that wasn't a knife wound. That was a knife with salt in the wound, yeah. twisting it. You know, That's horrible to see, even, even me being an American, so insulting, right? But, and and to, to use the Arc de Triomphe and, and to the publicity of Napoleon, that the whole, the whole transcendence, I think the movie fails to convey that that His magic, effects. right, right. It's the magic loop. Right. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and talking yeah. about Napoleon yeah, for no problem. almost two hours. I appreciate it. Do you have any last words? I know we kind of dogged on the movie a lot, but once again, I'm still very thankful that the movies like this still exist. It breaks it breaks a lot of the monotony that sometimes comes out, and you know, sometimes the film does get into struts where it's not really looking forward to much after the last one, like Oppenheimer, and everything was kind of bland and I didn't want to see much and you have films like this that really really get me want to go to the theater and I'm just really thankful that people like Scott do still have interest in making these these historical films I don't know what we do without directors like him and and uh, Martin Scorsese too so that's all I gotta say excellent thanks so much for coming by yeah
Apart from being an incredible strategist, a marvelous intuitive both politician and strategist, and was merciless. And yet there was something about him that fascinated me in that how could a man like this, who's on his way to take Moscow, to take Russia, be obsessed with what his, his wife is doing back in Paris?